Well, this morning we'll be in the book of First Timothy and in chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. And like I said, this morning we'll be talking about prayer, but not just prayer in general. We'll be talking about praying for the lost, praying for the souls of men and women to come to know Christ. And I think what happens, particularly, I was talking to somebody literally right before the service, is sometimes I think we get so busy with life and stuff that we we sometimes really forget (laughs) that the power and the move of God really comes through prayer, seeking God to move in power on the hearts of men and women. And and the priority of prayer in your life is, is really, you can tell whether or not it's a priority with, do you? Do you pray? Ask yourself this question. I was thinking about that this morning. Before you came here this morning, did you pray? Did you get before the Lord and say, Lord, would you open my heart to what you're going to teach me in the Word this morning? Father, would you prepare me to worship? Lord, bring people to this church so that they can hear the Word of God. God, would you move in power as the Word is preached upon the heart of people? How about this week? Have you been praying for family members and and those that you love that they would come to know Christ? Because oftentimes the priority of prayer is really seen by the activity of prayer. Do you pray? Well, Jesus, that was a priority, wasn't it? I mean, when we read the Gospels, whenever we see Jesus, it seems like He was stealing away, praying to His Father. And uh, Jesus, in his, his humanity, understood the importance of what prayer is, and, and particularly this idea about praying for the lost, praying that God would, would move in power upon the hearts of men that they might be saved. Paul the Apostle He was one who understood prayer, and that's why in this section this morning, he's going to urge Timothy to pray, and particularly to pray for those that are lost. And this morning, what we'll see is four ways on how we can pray for the lost. Let's read the text, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. It says, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires that all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at a proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. The first thing that we'll see this morning about how to pray for the lost is pray for peace so that the gospel witness will spread. I was thinking this morning, actually, maybe a better way I could have put this is pray for those in authority that we can have peace in our land so that the gospel will continue to go out in power. Ask God's grace and influence to so capture the hearts of those who lead that they too will be changed and that we'll have the freedom to continue to share the gospel with others. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. And then he says, for kings and all those in authority, 
that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Paul begins with, first of all, then. Now, you could also say, therefore, then. So he's looking back. And I think what Paul is doing here, he's looking back to chapter 1, verse 18. And what Paul had done is he had just said, hey, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. He had finished chapter 1 saying, Timothy, I've called you to be a pastor. You're to take over this church in Ephesus and fight. Fight for the faith. Well, what better way is there to fight than on our knees in prayer? And particularly when it comes to those that are lost, those that don't know Christ, those who don't know who Jesus is, we need to beseech God. We need to come before the throne of God as God's people and ask Him to move in power. And what Paul says here, he says, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Now, that word urge we saw in chapter 1, we see it again, it's parakaleo in the Greek, and it means to plead. He's saying, Timothy, I'm pleading with you. Be that guy. Be that man that, that prays. And then he breaks prayer down into four categories. He says, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving. And, and I think when we see that, we'll see, if you will, a different angle of prayer, particularly on how we should pray for the lost. Entreaties is the Greek word desis, and, and the root is to lack something, to be deprived of something, to be without something. You can't save anyone. You have to pray. You have to go before God. We need to realize that we don't have it. We don't have the ability to bring someone into the kingdom of God, but God does. And so we lack that, but we go to God who has the ability. We know that we don't have it. He does. And so we go before the throne of God pleading for the souls of men and women. The next one, prayers, is prosuke. It's the general word for prayer, but it has God as its focus, and it has the idea of reverence and worship. It honors God when we go before the throne of God. It, 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 it gives Him worship when we begin to seek Him because we know we need Him to move. And what gives God more glory than to have the lost come to Christ? When those that didn't know Jesus suddenly know Jesus, and they're praising God, and God gets glorified, Pray. The third one is petitions. It's in Tuchus, and it's only seen here in 1 Timothy 4, 5, and it means to fall in with someone, to get involved with someone. It carries with it two things, the idea of intercession, pleading for someone's soul, but also this idea of compassion, that you're in it. You, you, you love them, and you're pleading for them because there's some kind of connected. You've, you're part of this person and so you, you regularly go before God and you plead with God for the soul of this person that you love. He's put them on your heart. Sometimes it can be a friend or a family member, or sometimes even God will burden you, won't he, with a stranger you just met and you just have to pray for them that they might be saved. You know, I read about a, a Baptist pastor and preacher. His name is F.B. Meyer, and he was doing a conference and his roommate was A.B. Simpson, and he's the co-founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And, and F.B. Meyer was awakened one morning because he heard weeping and crying out in the next room, and he went into the next room, and he saw A.B. Simpson on his knees clutching a globe of the world, and he cried out, his, may his tribe increase, may his tribe increase. He had so much compassion for the loss that F.B. Meyer said he never forgot that, that the love this man had for people that needed Jesus. And that same kind of love, that same kind of compassion with this idea of petitions Paul the Apostle had. 
In Romans chapter 9, Paul said, For I, I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul literally is saying, God, would you save them? I'd be, even be willing to give my soul for their soul. Guys, that's compassion. That's a desire to see the lost come into the kingdom. So when you pray, say, God, would you give me a heart like A.B. Simpson and a heart like Paul? Would you give me that kind of compassion that I might have the heart to pray for people that way? Andrew Murray says that intercession is the primary power by which God moves and he opens the gates of heaven. So entreaties, prayers, petitions, and the last one here is thanksgiving. And I think it goes without saying, but are you grateful that you know Christ? I mean, man, can you believe it? God saved me. He saved you. What? Are you thankful? And that thankfulness, it drives our prayer. Because we want that for other people so much. We say, Lord, thank you. And it drives us on our knees to start praying for others. The idea is this. Do you you understand that, that people are lost and they're heading for hell? And so we need to entreat God. We need to plead for them. Do you want to see God glorified? And so you, you pray, saying, oh, Lord, I, I want this so much. And, but it's also for your glory. Do you have a heart that just has this compassion for others and, and it just drives you to your knees often in prayer? And then you're grateful. And that grateful heart, that thankful heart kind of drives that. And so Paul says that, that our, our, these kind of prayers are to be made on behalf of all men. Remember, the, the gospel message is for all people. It's not exclusive. It's not for only Americans or certain types of people. It's open. The grace of God is open for all people. And our prayers need to be for all people. James and James, James says, show no partiality, have no favorites, particularly when you're pleading for the souls of the lost. And then what Paul does, and it's going to be a test for us here, Paul gives an example of those that we should pray for. Look, at verse 2, he says, for kings and all those in authority. Now, I don't know where you lean politically, but this might be a really tough one for you to begin to plead for the souls of those lost who are leaders, those who are in authority over you. He says, for kings and all those in authority. I mean, for us in context, it would be that we we pray for our local and state government officials, that we pray for those in the federal government, those who have authority over us as leaders. We just had the National Day of Prayer, and we met right up here off of La Paz, and and our church, if you had everybody show up, we, we'd have probably somewhere around four to 500 adults. But we had about maybe 40 to 50 people show. So that shows me that we had about 10% of our congregation praying for the leaders of our nation and for our nation on that particular day. Is this a regular part of your prayer? And I can tell you, I think the reason it's not is because we're kind of disconnected from our leaders, aren't we? It's like they're distant, and a lot of them don't think like we do. They're never going to vote like we do, and we just kind of forget. Paul is saying here we, we need to pray for them, that we need to pray for those in authority because they play a tremendous role in our life. And the fact, those in authority will determine whether or not we're free to worship Christ or not, whether or not we're free to spread the gospel or not. And it really will impact the way that our church functions and all churches function and the people of God function instead of getting the gospel out. And it's interesting, in context here, he says, pray for the king. Understand, he's probably talking about the emperor. At that time, it was the emperor Nero. Think about that. That was a vile, wretched man. 
He hated Christians. He literally would kill Christians. He'd put them on stakes, cover them with tar, and light them as lights for his parties. And what does Paul say to do about him? Pray. Pray that God would move in power on this man, that he might be saved. Because that man would never change unless Christ comes in and changes him. And the same thing is for us. And, and what are we supposed to pray? Are we supposed to pray that, that our leaders, that they, they make right decisions and that they have wisdom? I think that we should. But if you look, just look down to verse 4, I think he's really saying we pray for their salvation. Verse 4 says that God desires that all men would be saved. I think in the context of this section here, we're to pray for our leaders primarily that they'll come to know Jesus Christ, that they'll be saved, that they'll be changed, that they'll be transformed. Because if that happens, everything else changes the way they vote, the way that they do their government, and it will impact us. So whether or not those that are in authority, whether or not you agree with them or not, you might consider them evil, you might consider them cruel, he's saying pray for them anyway. Be on our knees in prayer. Now, I've heard some people pray for persecution for Christians, believe it or not, because they think, well, persecution makes Christians more serious, and and then the gospel spread. Not really. Do you know, as a country, because we're free, We've impacted more people for Christ than any other nation in the history of our world. Why? Because we've had the freedom to go and to worship. And that that has spread throughout all the nations. Pray for our leaders. And then he says, in all godliness and dignity. Because when we have the freedom to live a life, that idea of, of peace here, we can then live out. Our life in godliness and dignity. Godliness is Christ-likeness, living a life that honors Christ by our actions and our deeds. And dignity, uh, being, being without sin, being without something that's visible, being a person of character that other people recognize. When, when people see our lives, we should be the ones that, that they say, wow, those people are the best citizens I've ever seen. This is how Peter would put it in 1 Peter 2.17. He says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Again, that king is Nero. Romans 13.1 and 2 says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, in the context, what he's saying here is that we're to honor just laws that have been placed by the government. We're to be the best people when it comes to the law. Now, he's not saying if there's something that's immoral, yes, we're to take a stand. If it goes against what the Bible says, yeah, we're supposed to stand against it. But when it comes to the laws of the land and keeping the law, we should be it. People should look at us as the example. We're not supposed to spend all our time in political rallies. We're to spend our time on our knees praying for those who are in authority. That's the idea here. I didn't know this, but there are many that believe that the Berlin Wall was brought down really because of prayer. This was an interesting article to me. In, in May of 1989, in a place called Leipzig, in the historic church, St. Nicholas Church in East Berlin, this is where the Reformation had been introduced 450 years earlier. A small group of people began to meet in that church, and they began to read the Sermon on the Mount and to pray for peace. And what happened is, is it kind of caught wind, and the Holy Spirit started to fuel it, and more and more people started to come, and they had to move it from a little prayer room to the main sanctuary. And then on October 9th, 1989, 
2,000 individuals were in the church, 10,000 people were outside the church, all praying for the wall to come down. Matter of fact, there were so many people that it closed down the off-ramp of the Audubon leading in to that area. Well, the communists caught word of this. They got really upset, and they sent in uh, some of their people, and they took some people and took them to jail and all that. But one month later, on November 9th, the Berlin Wall officially came down. Do you think that's by coincidence? I don't think so. I think it's prayer. And I'm thinking, man, if, if, if we as a church, just right here in our little spot here in Mission Viejo, if we became so serious about prayer, particularly praying for the lost, and we begin to seek the Lord and say, God, please, please bring them here. God, please save them out there. I think we would see God move in power and strength. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Pastor Rob, you know, I, I, I don't think I can pray for certain government officials. I mean, I literally look at them as an enemy. What would Jesus say to that? Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, Jesus said this. He says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. We're to be the ones beseeching the throne of God so that we might have peace in this land so that the gospel will spread out even more. That's the first point. Pray for peace so that the gospel will spread There's another point here. Pray confidently for the lost to be saved, knowing that that is God's desire. We can have confidence when we pray for the lost because that is the heart of our God. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul is saying this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. He's saying this is right. In the context here, that word good is kalan in the Greek, and it means excellent or morally good. He's saying this is in line with who God is. This is right. It's morally right, and and it pleases God. Again, the Christian faith is not exclusive. Yes, it is open to all. In this room right now, as followers of Christ, we have all kinds of backgrounds, don't we? Some of you used to be Buddhists. Seriously, I mean, I know, I know some of you, that's, Buddha was it. Other, others here have come out of the Mormon cult. Others have come out of Jehovah's Witnesses. Some of you guys came out of the Catholic church. Others of you have come out of Protestant church. But now you know Christ. You've been changed, you've been transformed, you're different. At one time, you, you didn't even understand it, and then all of a sudden you started to understand that you were a sinner before a holy God, and, and someone or a radio or however, you, you heard the truth about Jesus, and you became a Christian, and you're changed, and you're different. But sometimes we can lose sight of the openness of the gospel. Sometimes it can become almost like a club, and, and it can kind of feed on classism and racism and, and nationalism. Guys, that is not from God. That is from the pride of man. And this is what drove William Carey onto the mission field. His own church, the leaders there said this. They said, young man, if God is going to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or ours. That kind of heart, William Carey said, I'm out of here. And he went on the mission field and he became what we know as the father of modern day missions. Because it is good and it is acceptable to God that we pray for the lost. Why? Why? Because it says right here that God desires all men to be saved 
and come to the knowledge of the truth. It is consistent to pray for the lost because it lines up directly where God's heart is for the lost. We're not to exclude anyone. Paul said authorities, and in this context, think about it. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, think about the church in that day. They're mostly Jewish. And some of the Jews were freaking out that all of a sudden you had pagans coming into the church. And Paul is saying, no, our God is open. The arms are open wide. Pray that all would come into the kingdom of God. Now, we know that the scriptures teach both divine election and human responsibility. And we understand that there's a process that God has to be involved in the process of saving people. I mean, Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father. No one comes to me unless the Father draws. And we understand that. But in the context here, Paul is saying, God wants all to come. His heart is broad. Arms are open. Please come into the kingdom of God. And I want to focus this morning in the context here about the openness of the gospel and God's desire to see people saved. Now, this does not mean that God wills all to be saved, because if God willed all to be saved, all would be saved. We're not universalists. Now, we know Rob Bell, a previous pastor, he wrote a book called Love One Out, and basically what that teaches is that there is no hell, and it doesn't matter what you believe, but all will end up in heaven. And God's love won out. Guys, that's a lie. It's not true. It's not scriptural. It's not in the Bible. But the Bible does teach this, that God desires that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That the very heart of God is that people would come to know Christ. And what gives me great comfort here is that when I pray and I seek the Lord, I can have confidence that this is God's will that I know that when I'm sharing uh, Christ with somebody, that I know God's in that, that he really wants that to happen, that there's a move of God in the Spirit to make that happen. Verse 4 is an expression of God's desire, his heart. This is why in John, he said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him, they should not perish, but they would have eternal life. And in verse 17, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through him. There is a willingness in God to save the lost. And it gives me great confidence that I'm in the will of God when I'm sharing with the lost. And I kind of get this picture, the drama of Jesus hanging there with his arms open wide. He's inviting all to come in to the kingdom of God. And literally on the cross, when Jesus was nailed, he said, Father, forgive them, those who nailed him to the cross. They don't know what they're doing, right? And just a few moments later, a man turns to him, the thief on the cross, who was probably a murderer, by the way, and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what was Jesus' response? Today, you will be with me in paradise. There's an openness to the gospel. Our God is a savior. He's a savior. When Paul began this letter in 1 Timothy, this is what he said in the very first verse. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior. We need to understand and have this deeply rooted in our heart that the salvation of men is the very desire of our Lord. Every race, every tongue, every tribe is welcome in. And there's nothing that we can place there to hold people back. 
Now, men's heart are to be moved by the Spirit of God, and we pray, God, please, would you break through that hard heart? God, would you move by the power of your Spirit? Would you change their thinking? Would you draw them in? I often pray for this church. God, please bring people here that are beginning to be stirred, that are being drawn, that need to hear about Jesus. And when I do, I know that I'm in the will of God. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter was called by the Spirit of God to go and speak to a, to a man by the name of Cornelius. Now, he's a Roman centurion, okay? So, he's a pagan, and he's a Roman. And so, if anyone would be out to the Jew, it would be him. But he's called to go talk to him. But Cornelius had already been prepared by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had already worked on his heart and already worked on his family's heart. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. It says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. It's open. And in verse 44, Peter begins to preach the gospel, and literally the Holy Spirit descends upon them. Verse 44 says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon them who were listening to the message. And we know that both Cornelius and his whole household believed and were saved, and he baptized them right then and there. God desires that all men would be saved. Mark 15, 15, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. Guys, I take great comfort to share the gospel with everyone. That I understand that the Lord is in this. And I share so that they'll come to the knowledge of the truth. What truth? The gospel truth. That God came as a man, Jesus Christ. That he lived a perfect life that we cannot live. He is our substitute before a holy God. And he was sacrificed on the cross for our sins. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him alone, we will be saved. John 5, 39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. Jesus said in John 7, 37 and 38, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures say, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living waters. And Acts 4.12 says that there is salvation in no one else, that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Guys, we have a message that God is in. And we can have confidence that we can bring that message. And we ask the Holy Spirit to bring it in power. Last Sunday was a very unique day for me. In fact, as, as a pastor and just as a guy with a family, it was so different for me. Now, Pastor Neil was preaching in the main service, and I had the privilege to preach preach for Pastor Farouz upstairs. And right between services, as I was getting ready to go upstairs, my mother, who got saved last year, and my brother, who became a believer last year, showed up, surprised me here at church. But they brought my sister, Barbara. Now, hear me. My sister, Barbara, has not been in a church probably since she was, I don't know, 12? And she's never ever believed in Christ, not even close. One time I had her captured in a truck for a whole day, you know, we were moving my mom and, and I was just hammering her, you know, and sh- nothing. And so I know my sister well, and my sister's beliefs had kind of been all over the map. But my sister and my brother Rick came upstairs with me to hear me preach for Pastor Farouz, and that, that's, they speak Farsi up there, so I did it with an interpreter, you know, and But it was interesting, as I was speaking, I was looking at my sister, and she was real teary-eyed, I mean, real emotional. I could tell she was just emotional. 
And Pastor Fruz has a, has a new um, worship leader up there, and the guy's great. And as soon as he started to sing, my sister started to bawl, started to cry. And I, that was in Farsi, right? So I took my family out to lunch to my house. I bought some El Pollo Loco, went home. And after we, we were done with lunch, my, do, my sister pulls me to the side, and she says, Rob, I need to tell you something. And she started to weep. And she put her head on my chest, and she said, I believe in Jesus. I was like, Wow. Amen. I'm kind of a pessimist, (laughs) honestly, because I wasn't quite sure what that meant because my sisters had many thoughts about Jesus. I mean, they've been all over the map. I mean, from a new age Jesus to, you know, you name it. He's one of many masters and all that kind of stuff. So I said, Barb, I really need to talk to you because I really want to know what that means. And so I went and sat down on our couch and I'm facing my sister and my mother comes in and she sits in the chair right behind me and I just start sharing the gospel. And I asked her a question somewhere in there. I said, Barbara, I mean, what would you say to God if you, if you stood before him in heaven? I mean, why should he let, let you into heaven? What, what's the requirement? She said, Rob, I don't know. And I said, there it is. Let's talk about that. And I shared with her the truth of the gospel. And no kidding, every time I'd share a point, she'd cry. And then I'd have to stop. <laughs> okay, then i go to the next point, And, and I kind of walked her through it. And the whole time I'm over here, I hear my mom weeping the whole time. And at the end, I asked my sister, I said, Barb, do you understand? Do you have the knowledge? Yes. Do you believe in Christ? Yeah. And I said, but Barb, there's one thing you need. You need to trust. Trust in him alone. And I said, are you willing to change your life? Be, give it over to him. Surrender. However you want to call it, are you willing to trust him alone for your salvation? And she said, yes, Rob, I am. So I got to pray with my sister last weekend. It was a joy. But then we had a baptism, right, scheduled. I said, Barb, you want to prove? Do you want to? be, you know, a testimony to others, and you want to show that you believe? She said, yeah. I said, we're having a baptism in two hours. You want to be with dad? She said, yeah, I got to baptize my sister. That was so cool. Yeah, it was awesome. So, guys, we can pray with confidence for the lost to be saved. Why? Because that's God's desire. We can pray for peace so that the gospel will spread. Third thing, pray for people to trust in Christ alone. That's important. Pray for people to trust in Christ alone. Because he paid the price for sin. A lot of people believe it's Jesus plus something else, and that equals being right with God. But the scriptures here are very clear. Look at the text, verses 5 and 6. It says, For there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at a proper time. There is one God. This is what the scriptures teach. There's not multiple gods. There's one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Corinthians 8.4 says, Therefore concerning the eating of the things sacrificed to idols, and we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one God. We understand that the Bible teaches that this one God has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit that they're co-equal, they're co-eternal. But our culture, what does it teach? Man, everything, anything goes, all roads lead to God, everything's open. If that's the case, then we don't need to pray for the lost because they'll just get there on their own, they'll just kind of wander in, it's cool, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you believe, it's good. But the scriptures are clear that there's only one God. And right here, it's very clear that there's a mediator, only one way to him. That word mediator refers to one who intervenes, Uh, between two individuals to restore peace, 
It's, it's one who ratifies a covenant. This is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We do not come to God by our religious works. We don't come to Him by praying to angels. We don't come to Him through priests or praying to the saints or through the Mother Mary. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we need to understand this idea. That, see, in the Old Covenant, the mediator were the priests, right? And, and once a year, they'd have what's called the Day of Atonement. And so only one priest who was specially selected could go in once a year and he would make an atonement, an offering, a peace offering with God once a year. But guys, we have a better high priest and we have a better covenant than the old Mosaic covenant. Hebrews 8.6 says that we have a better covenant. Listen to how it's put. It says, but now he being Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. We have a much better covenant than the Mosaic covenant. And not only that, we have a much better high priest in Jesus Christ. Listen to the way it's put in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 27. Therefore, he, being Jesus, is able to save, also save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus offered himself up once for all. He became the perfect sacrifice, and no other sacrifices are needed. A better covenant, a better high priest, and we have the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And there's a reason why Paul put the man Christ Jesus. He's speaking about Jesus' humanity. And the reason he focuses on his humanity is we needed a substitute. Animals will not give us everlasting life. It was a partial covering. We needed a man to be substituted. But he had to be perfect. No sin, no blemish. This is why John said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus lived that perfect life. He is the perfect substitute. He is the one that willingly went to the cross, died on the cross for our sins. And our sins are laid on Him, but we only have access to God through Him. Because the reason is somebody had to make a payment, pay a ransom. If you look at verse 6, it says, who himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at a proper time. Jesus gave himself as a ransom. That means he became a payment for us. He paid a debt that we cannot pay. What debt is that? The wages of sin is death. The fact that you're a sinner born into sin means that you will die both physically and spiritually. And you needed to be ransomed back from that spiritual death. Jesus lives that perfect life. He willingly gave himself as a substitute, as a sacrifice, and he bought your place. And when my sister put her trust in Christ, she was ransomed, set free. When my sister dies, she will be in heaven. I will see her again for sure, no doubt about it. The ransom has been paid. Remember on the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. 
That's the Greek word tetelestai. That means paid in full also in the Greek. So you kind of have this picture when, when a person who was in prison was released, they paid their debt to society. They literally would get a, ship of, a slip of paper and they would stamp on it tetelestai, paid in full. Jesus is saying it's been paid in full on the cross. The ransom has been taken care of. This is why when we preach, we can say, come. This is why in Revelation 22, 7 says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Come to the water of life. We can preach that because we understand it's the very heart of God. It is a free gift offered. And then Paul says it was given at the proper time. A testimony given at the proper time. God's redemptive plan came exactly in the time of history as it, as it was supposed to come. And now we have the privilege to look back and see what God has done. And those that were before the cross looked forward waiting for the cross. I want to give you a quick picture, if you will, a metaphor of how this works. As I was trying to think this through, let's just suppose you're, you're on a river with a buddy and you're going down the river on a raft, and you get tipped over, and the raft goes on ahead of you, and now you're floating free in the water with your friend, and, and you both are kind of freaking out because it's really a wide river, and you're noticing that it's starting to go faster and faster, and there's little bits of ripples and getting kind of scared, but all of a sudden, this big old log comes kind of drifting by, and you and your friend grab onto it. Now, it's stable. It's big. It, it looks like it's going to be able to, to be there for you and keep you alive. You won't drown. That's good. But you're hearing these screams from the shore, and people are yelling. They're saying, there's a waterfall. <laughs> there's a waterfall coming. It means sure death, but you can't hear them. Too many waves, too much noise. And all of a sudden, a rope comes over, and it lands right in front of you. Now, you have a choice. You can stay on this big old log. It's safe. It, it looks like it's just going to hold your weight. You could drift on that all day long. You don't know that there's a waterfall coming. Or you can take this thin little rope. It looks like it's not as big as the log. You might even slip, but... But there's safety on the shore, and you know that for sure. And so you grab that rope, and, and, you, and you go to hand it to your friend, but your friend drifts off on the log. He doesn't want the rope. He takes off on the log, and you get pulled into safety. That rope is a picture of Christ. It is the mediator. It is the one that drags us to safety, to God. Your friend is on his own effort, on religion. It's a picture of the log, and he goes to sure death. We have the privilege to be given a mediator, one who died for us. That's how we should pray for the lost. Choose the rope. Choose Christ. Now, some of you might be struggling and, and you're thinking, well, Pastor Rob, I've been praying for my friends and family for years and I'm done. This is how I often pray, and I've been praying for my family. I seek the Lord to save them. I ask for Him to break through. But I remember 1 Peter 3, 15. Set apart Christ as Lord. And always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. I pray God will open the door for me to share too. That's a great prayer to kind of keep us connected to what God might want to do. Three things. Pray for peace that the gospel witness would spread. Pray confidently for the lost that they would be saved, knowing that this is God's desire. And pray for people to trust in Christ alone because he paid the price for sin. And there's a last one. Pray for more preachers so the lost will hear the gospel and be saved. Pray that God will send out more, more preachers. This is how Paul puts it. 1 Timothy 2, 7 and 8 says this. It says, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, 
Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Paul says that he was appointed a preacher. And we know that God called him to preach specifically to the lost. This idea of preacher means a herald, one who proclaims publicly Christ. He was also an apostle. Now, the apostles ended with the first century, but preachers are still appointed today. We need to pray that God will appoint more. We need to ask God to raise up men and women to bring the gospel. But I think this idea of a preacher also could fall to us. Now, we, we, some of us may not be appointed specifically to be a preacher as a vocation, but all of us have been called to proclaim Christ, to share Christ. This is where Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all parts of the earth. He says, go and make disciples, right, in all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Great Commission. All of us have been given the privilege and the opportunity to do this. And I would just say, pray for those opportunities. Ask God to open them for you. But when we do that, we have to have the right attitude. And so what Paul says here in verse 8, Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Men in every place means the church. He's basically saying, I want all you people that believe to pray. Lifting up holy hands means that your life is right. That you're, you're living a holy life. It's not perfect, but whenever you blow it, you go right to the Lord. But I think the idea here with wrath and dissension says if you know that there's something, you have an offense against someone, if you're angry or hateful, anything before the Lord that you go to the Lord, you confess it before you begin to pray for others. That's the heart behind it. I'd like to end with this church. Let's be a praying church. Let's pray that God would raise up others to begin to proclaim the gospel. Let's see what God will do with us if we submit to Him in prayer and really start pleading that the Lord would bring the lost here and that they might be saved. And I truly believe, I really do, that we'll see a major move upon the hearts of men and women. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this message. I thank You, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. I thank You, Father, that you are faithful, and sometimes, Lord, you prompt us by your Spirit to pray for the lost. I thank you that that is your desire, that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of Christ. And so, Father, would, would you help us to be faithful? Would you bring, Lord, to this church those that are seeking? They may not even know what they're seeking, Lord, but you know. And, Lord, would you allow us the privilege to, to lead them to Christ and to help them to grow? What an honor that would be in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have you stand with me.